0: You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network.
1: And welcome to episode 38 of Archaeology Now, a free monthly archaeology talk brought to you by Archaeology in the City, the community outreach program from the University of Sheffield's Department of Archaeology. This month, our guest speaker is Maureen Carroll, speaking about making wine for the Emperor on the Roman Imperial State at Bagnari, Italy. Due to current COVID 19 restrictions, this talk is taking place online via Google Meets, so there may be some background noise or audio feedback in our recording please note that there are images available for you to browse at your leisure. Enjoy!
0: This excavation has been ongoing basically since 2011. The last field season was 2018. Uh, little did I know that when I chose that year to have a study season the following year to catalogue and work on all the finds, that that was absolutely very well placed because if I'd intended to go back digging in 2020 or 2021, it wouldn't have been possible. So it is a work in progress right now. The, the edited Vannery volume is in the making and a number of papers are uh, appearing very shortly in, in various journals. So now is the time after all the work in the the field productive time uh, when we make sense of what we found and start disseminating that knowledge. So I'm going to be talking about a specific aspect of the Imperial estate something that I've been working on uh, quite a bit in the last months and that's making wine for the emperor and I'm going to uh, start the PowerPoint here by backtracking a little bit and setting the scene for the Imperial estate. Now, this map will show you where the site is located. It is, in fact, on the larger map, the red little red temple is the site of Vaniuri. And it lies in modern-day Puglia, ancient Apulia, in the southeastern part of the Italian peninsula, as the small map indicates. In the pre-Roman period, at least from about 600 BC, uh, this is an area of Italy that's inhabited by various Italic ethnic groups, independent groups, some of them... Uh, having contact with uh, Greek colonies along the southern coast of Italy in Magna Grecia. But by the 4th century BC, increasingly, uh, Rome, coming from the uh, northwest, is encroaching uh, on this territory and uh, not always peacefully. And this is uh, when we find conflicts starting to happen between the indigenous Italic groups in Apulia and, and Rome. Now, the, you can see that there are different ethnic groups here. There are the Downey. These are the sites at the top that are indicated with blue dots. Uh, there are the Poiketi, the sites with the yellow dots. And one of their main settlements was at Silvium Botromagno, where you see the uh, yellow column The Masapi are these uh, peoples down at the very southern southern end in black, and then the Lucani, a modern-day Basilicata with the red sites. They're all independent of each other. And in amongst uh, some of these uh, settlements down here on the Ionian Gulf, on the Ionian Sea, are various Greek settlements. So you have a bit of Greek colonization, but largely it's limited to the coastal regions. Now, the site of Silvium, uh, modern-day Botromagno, known today, less so for the archaeology, I suppose, amongst the general public, more for its wine. Uh, You can see uh, Botromagno, the uh, site of ancient Silvium, in the background on the other side of the ravine during the summer and in the winter. And up on the top there is where the settlement was. It's an extremely large settlement occupied for about three or four hundred years prior to the Roman conquest. And at the foot of the hill uh, across the ravine are a number of chamber tombs and some of the images at the bottom show you some of the pre-Roman finds that have come from these tombs, including typical Italic burials where men are equipped with armour. Here's one of the helmets found in one of the graves. Also very large red figure vases, some of them coming from Athens, but most of them coming from red figure uh, workshops in Apulia. So, called Apulian Red figure So the graves are probably better known here at Silvium and Bottromagno archaeologically than the settlement itself. But this is the main settlement of the Poicheti. Now, uh, the third century uh, is a place, I think, that probably the Poicheti and anyone else who lived in southeast Italy uh, would not have enjoyed very much. Uh, The Romans come into uh, contact when they're expanding south with the Samnites, who live in the central part of Italy, and they're also expanding south. So Silvium is taken by the Samnites, but the Romans do not tolerate that. And in pursuing the Samnites, they attack uh, Silvium, Bottomagno, and defeat the city in 306 BC and take thousands of prisoners. Then in the early 3rd century, we have a number of of different uh, groups uh, vying for power in the southeast. Uh, Tarentum, right at the top of the heel of the boot, uh, uh, an ancient Greek colony, is at war with Rome, and Tarentum uh, employs the help of Pyrrhus of Epirus, and he campaigns around through uh, the south for a a while, defeating a number of Roman armies, but in the end uh, overstretching himself and having to return to Epirus. Also in the 3rd century, you have the campaigns of the Carthaginians. And you can see Hannibal's route here. Uh, In the Second Punic War, uh, there is a lot of action in southern Italy. Some major battles fought very close to the site where we excavate. Some of the Italic and Greek communities in southern Italy sided with Hannibal against Rome. Of course, we know the story that Hannibal lost, Carthage was defeated, and of course those Italic cities that had sided with Hannibal suffered thereafter uh, because there were retributions. So the result, particularly from the late 4th and in the 3rd century, was much disruption, confiscation of territory and there were many punishments meted out uh, and Roman veterans settled in confiscated land. Much of the land in southeast Italy became a Roman state land, agar publicus. That means it was expropriated from the indigenous population and became the property of the state officially. But those are really just the bare bones of maps, um, dates of battles, names of generals, etc. And it's only archaeology, really, that allows us to put some flesh on these bones and begin to understand the profound transformation politically, socially and economically in southern Italy. So in the 3rd century BC, we can see on the ground archaeological evidence for this disruption as I mentioned uh, a minute ago, sylvium here on the map, uh, Gravina Bottomagno is sylvium, was sacked in 306 BC. Uh, excavations there indicate that it was abandoned in the third century after that. There are a number of other sites that probably were small rural settlements dependent on sylvium, such as one here at Iazzo von Asiello, uh, which has been excavated by the University of Milan. And it's clear that that also was abandoned at the latest in the early third century in the wake of the conquest of Silvium. Um, Vanyary, you can see where the Red Temple is on the Vanyary Plateau. Uh, There were um, uh, surveys done and surface collection and of course our excavation. And all of this indicates that there was a settlement on the plateau at Vanyary, but it too was abandoned in the third century. Likewise, a little further up the hill at San Felice, a settlement uh, that goes back probably to the 6th century BC uh, is also abandoned in the 3rd century. And likewise, another site nearby, Monte Irsi, uh, is abandoned in the 3rd century. So we're starting to to get a picture of, of widespread abandonment in the wake of the sack of sylvium. And we know this only because of more recent archaeological expo- exploration. In the decades following the Roman conquest, the road network, in particular the Via Appia, which commences in Rome, was extended to the east coast. This is the white line, the Via Appia here, uh, and along it were planted Roman colonies. They are planted uh, all along the route from Rome, along the west coast, and then uh, crossing the Apennines over to the east coast. The Roman colonies in yellow are those colonies that are established in the 3rd and 2nd centuries BC, after the conquest of Apulia. The pink colonies are older and go back to at least the 4th century. And you can see the logic of the Via Appia at at one time, extending Roman uh, contact from uh, the west to the east coast, and then consolidating its hold on the land by establishing colonies occupied by Roman citizens. So it's a two-pronged attack, and it worked very well in holding the land for Rome. After the battles with, with Hannibal, uh, some of these Roman colonies in the south, like Venusia or Venosa, north of Vanniari here, uh, was depleted. They'd lost a lot of men in the war. Of course, Venusia was on the side of Rome. Um, the colonists had to be uh, replenished, and, and new citizens and funds uh, were invested to refurbish uh, Venusia. Now, on the eastern coast, um, there is quite a lot of recent archaeological evidence, thanks to the state and university archaeologists in Apulia who... really a very stellar job of exploring the countryside, we can see that the land, probably in the second century BC, under Roman supervision, the land begins to be parceled out into equal sizes. Uh, This is what we refer to as centuriation. It's part of the Roman agrarian reforms in the second century BC. And you'll notice uh, that a lot of the centuriation, that's the grid here, is located in this fertile uh, eastern section along the coast where we have uh, lots of vineyards and olive groves. These are the two products that come primarily from this region. Now, this is in part uh, a place where land is occupied by Roman aristocrats with large land holdings uh, and small peasant land holdings declined. Economic uh, opportunities obviously opened up for the Romans after the conquest, especially for this fertile Adriatic coastal region. And of course, the exports uh, went across the Adriatic, in particular from the new Roman colony of Brundisium. And we can see here on the map that uh, some of the products from Brindisium, from Apulia, where they've been found. They've been found as far west as Spain and as far east uh, along the Nile and also in Israel. Um, In the uh, aerial surveys and excavation of the region, uh, we also have lots of evidence for uh, these farms or estates, what they look like, sometimes even so well preserved that we can see plantings of vines and trees and orchards and so on, producing the exports that left the country. Accompanying that are a number of sites where we have lots of amphora production, in particular for the wine and for the olive oil uh, that comes from this area. And those are, of course, the markers of the vast extent of export from Southeast Italy at this time. You can see the Via Appia here uh, going very close to the site of Vanieri and going very close to uh, Silvium Bottramanum. So we have centuriation here, we have new Roman towns, we have new Roman colonies, but farther west, where in in central Apulia, where Vanuri is located, um, there were no colonies and only some very small towns. And therefore, this area has been a little bit neglected, and it is uh, our excavations that uh, are shedding quite a bit of light on what is happening in this underexplored region. Our excavations have shown that in the 2nd century B.C., Vanyuri was resettled after a hiatus of about 100 years. And we can date that very carefully because of the material culture. And on the screen, you can see some of the, the typical uh, grey glossware um, that uh, is typical of the 2nd and the 1st centuries B.C. Here are some of the vessel shapes, uh, a grey gloss lamp, uh, which our uh, own Kelsey Madness is holding here as a site supervisor at Vannery. Uh, we have loom weights, a perfume flasks, lots of metal and so on. All of this dating to the second century. So we know that something new is being established here after this hiatus. And it's occupied till about the mid or the late first century BC. Uh, There's resuscitation elsewhere at Sylvium after it was sacked in 306. In the second half of the second century BC, excavations have shown that a new villa with subsidiary buildings is erected. And the focus here is on weaving, making textiles, uh, because we are in an old transhumance region here where wool is really important. But this is settled by new settlers. This is not the Poiketi any longer. And the settlement there goes on to about 80 or 70 BC. And Monte Irsi, another site that I showed on another map, is also resuscitated in the second half of the second century with a new villa built over the indigenous remains of the third century BC. So we can see that there is life coming into the, the region. And perhaps this is an influx of newcomers, perhaps Romans from Italy, I mean, from from Rome and elsewhere in Italy, um, not necessarily any of the former locals. Now, the site of Vannuri was discovered through field walking and surface collection by Carola and Alistair Small in 2000. And it was the focus of excavations under my direction from 2011. The retrieval here and in the immediate surroundings of Vanyry of ceramic roof tiles stamped with the name of a workshop master who was an imperial slave, you can see two of them at the bottom, um, indicates that this territory and its central settlement at Vanyry were indeed the property of the Roman emperor himself. Now this uh, happens uh, sometime in the early 1st century AD. So, we have the Iron Age indigenous settlement at Vanyary abandoned in the 3rd century, a new Roman settlement created in the 2nd century, which then gets abandoned in the 1st century BC, and then we have a new settlement on the same site that is Roman imperial and dates to the early 1st century AD. Now, I will explain this map here because it might look a little bit confusing. You can see the Basentalo River here, which flows into the Ionian Sea, and the Pentechia River here. Silvium located here. In green is the old ancient droveway. Here's another droveway. I mentioned that we're in a transhuman zone that had been practiced for a very long time. And field survey... Um, picking up uh, roof tile and whatever else was lying on the surface because of ploughing uh, has suggested that the imperial estate might have occupied an area that was at least 25 to 30 square kilometers in size and perhaps a bit bigger. The purple is the Via Appia going right through the imperial estate. So you can see that the location is actually quite advantageous. It's on the intersection of two ancient drove roads, leading from west to east and from south to north. It's on the Via Appia, and it's also closely associated with rivers, even if they're not very large. And we're not sure that they were navigable here, but they could have been used for transporting something. So that's the imperial estate, and we know it's imperial because of these slaves who belonged to the emperor. This is the site of Vannery. In principle, uh, this is how Vannery and the landscape here looks every summer after the grain has been harvested in early July. In this particular year, uh, instead of planting grain on one of the uh, areas, they planted chickpeas uh, and it's the chickpeas here that are a light yellowy green that actually highlight the whole plateau on which the uh, village or vicus of Vannery was located. So we have the vicus on one side of this ravine and the necropolis or cemetery on the other side and this is looking to the uh, northeast. The excavations um, have produced uh, a lot of evidence for the northwestern corner of the Vicus. Uh, a rather murky looking resistivity survey plot out on the right. I've highlighted in red uh, the area that we've actually excavated and tried to connect it with some of the other walls that were excavated by Alistair Small and by the features that show up in the resistivity survey. So all in all, this is is what we have excavated, and we have determined that there are six different phases of occupation and building here. One thing that we have been able to ascertain is that the imperial settlement in the first century AD was not without some luxury. It's often been thought that, that the Vicus here would have been a very utilitarian settlement. And it was. It's there for one purpose and one purpose only, and that's to raise revenues for the imperial coffers. There is no villa here. There is no luxurious residence. I'm quite sure that none of the emperors ever set foot at Vanyary. It's a place where the workers of the estate live and where the administration is based but it's not without some luxury. So in the early 1st century AD, when the imperial settlement, the vicus, is established, we can see uh, rather well-built stone walls being constructed. Uh, We have things like stone-built drains very carefully constructed. Uh, We have marble uh, inlays, probably floors and wall coverings, uh, one fragment of a marble mosaic. Uh, These things do not suggest some sort of mean, poorly appointed settlement. And we have very large panes of window glass, potentially up to 40 or 60 centimetres in width and length. Uh, And they're actually quite rare on Roman sites in Italy. So that's uh, another indication of some luxury. And we also have evidence for tiles, and they look like a piece of a pie, segmental tiles. When put together, they create a circle, and then they can be plastered and uh, painted, and they look like marble. Of course, they're a much cheaper version. But it does suggest that some buildings here at least must have had columns, perhaps porches, overlooking the Via Appia and the landscape were not certain. So we know that the imperial settlement, the vicus, is established in the early first century BC, thanks to the material culture and thanks to the epigraphy on the stamps. But how precisely the imperial estate at Vanyard was created is unclear. It could have been bequeathed to the emperor by an aristocrat who owned the land before him, Um, It could have been donated to him, or of course it could be simply a confiscation, an imperial confiscation. Or what the other possibility is, because this is Roman state land, Aga publicus, that the emperor simply detaches a large piece of that for himself. Now, in other places, in Apulia and in neighbouring Lucania, uh, we have the first Roman villas appearing in the second half of the first century BC and early first century AD, about the same time as this. And some of them demonstrably belong to the elite and even members of the imperial family. And sometimes you'll read in the literature that if you have things like marble mosaics, columns... Uh, window glass, and so on. These are an indication that they're not indigenous local settlers, but that they are uh, higher status Romans who are attracted to the area for economic advancement. Well, as I said, there's no sign of a villa here, and I don't think it will ever be found. Um, So we might ask whether some of the signs of luxury, if you want to think of them that way, at the Vicus, prompt us to debate whether uh, they really are signs of a villa, or if also a village like vaniery that belongs to the emperor, could be a place for social stratification through building materials and layout. Um, By the second century AD, the focus of the settlement appears to uh, be on uh, production, agricultural production, with the erection of utilitarian structures of much plainer character. So the first century is a little bit more high status, perhaps the second century, it's all geared towards production and earning money for the emperor. There can be little doubt that this settlement was created to raise revenues for the imperial purse, largely through agriculture. At Vanyary, for the imperial period, there's uh, evidence of substantial cereal cultivation. And if we look at Varro uh, writing on agriculture in the first century BC, he highlights, in fact, that Apulia is a place uh, where very good wheat comes from. He says um, there are regions that are particularly good for certain agricultural products. Uh, spelt uh, from Campania, which I've highlighted here with a, a red diamond. Uh, wheat from Apulia with a pink diamond. Wine, uh, the Falamian, of course, is the very best. That's the brown diamond. And olive oil, Vanafron is the best, and that's the blue diamond. The green star, of course, is Rome. So Apulia is known for its productive soil and its grain produce. There's evidence for diversity in cereal cultivation here at Manuary. Matt Stern and Rebecca Skouros, two former graduates of uh, the University of Sheffield Archaeology Department, uh, determined that there are multiple types of grain uh, that were being grown at the same time, including uh, free threshing wheat, gloom wheat and barley, all on the same estate. Uh, but this changes over time, and I've just to simplify that given some abbreviations on the lower right. So, in the first century AD, it's mostly gloom wheats, spelt emmer and einkorn, followed by barley and free thrashing wheat. By the second century, gloom wheats uh, maintain a majority still, but free thrashing wheat inclu- increases and more prevalent than barley. And by the third century AD, and I think this might be the period of the greatest grain production in Apulia, we have uh, free, th- uh, free thrashing wheat. Um, being most prevalent with some gloomweed and barley simply as a minority. So this system would have required substantial labour and manpower, considering that these various species are processed in different ways and stored in different processes. So it's unclear, but it may be that the crop diversity practiced at Vanieri was an insurance against uh, climatic uh, variability or was a preventative measure to hamper soil erosion, which is a real problem still today. At any rate, it reflects an advanced knowledge of farming uh, in the landscape of southern Italy. And we have lots of grain storage pits. And in fact, for the first century AD, even if we don't If we can't recognize the remnants of walls, we can figure out more or less where rooms were, because these grain storage pits, which I've highlighted in blue on the plan here, are arranged inside rooms along the foot of the walls. So, right up against the interior walls. As you can see along here, they're all lined up here, lined up here. This um, is topped later by a different wall, but you can see that there are a lot of these pits. Uh, A couple of them uh, still had the ceramic storage pithos or dolium in it, and uh, some of them had mortar lining. The dolium is gone, uh, but you can see the, the impression of the flat base. Those pits are then backfilled with all manner of refuse at the end of the first century AD. So the grain storage pits are used throughout the first century AD, and then they're given up. And that's because I think they're building purpose-built granaries elsewhere on site to store much larger quantities of grain when the estate gears up to producing more uh, wheat. So these are things that are for immediate consumption. This is not grain storage uh, that suggests a great export. This is probably for local uh, consumption. Another staple of the Vanyary economy was sheep grazing for the production of wool. And uh, another ex-Sheffield student, uh, Angela Trentacosta, has been looking at the animal bones from Vanuri and exploring also Roman transhumans and the practice of driving sheep in the spring to the mountains, then back to the lowlands in autumn. Um, And it's uh, Vero, uh, who again wrote about agriculture in the first century BC, who tells us that he had himself flocks of sheep who spent the winter in Apulia and the summer in Latium. And they were driven back and forth along these droveways. And you can see a number of the known droveways down here as well. Again, here we have Vanyuri nestled in between these two droveways, meaning it's, uh, it's very well connected. And Vanyuri tells us, of course, that uh, he reports the flocks that are driven by shepherds back and forth uh, and pays taxes because otherwise you'd be in trouble with the law. So the Roman government might be sitting in Rome, but it's controlling things like transhumans, even down here in southeast Italy. So Vannery's location, producing, uh, I think, uh, the flocks or, or the place where the sheeps are shorn uh, to, um, to get the wool, I take advantage of the droveways from uh, Lucania, here from the west, and from Tarentum in the south, uh, heading north. Canusium is a big textile centre in their own period, Venusia less so, and, and so is Tarentum. So Vannery is actually really well placed to uh, manage the the flocks of sheep and to be a main um, manager of the uh, shearing of sheep and the production of wool. But from the second century AD, wool textile production here in the South seems to have become less significant and the land at Vanieri then goes into more grain production because by the 2nd century AD, uh, these sites up here in the foothills of the Alps in northern Italy uh, become rather uh, better exploited for wool and it has um, a very high reputation. So um, we can see a change in regime from uh, transhumans being replaced not entirely but substantially by the production of grain. And so I'm going to move on to the production of wine, which is the main focus tonight. Now, we had no idea before we started digging here that there were vineyards at Bunry or anywhere on the imperial estate, uh, because we've uh, unearthed the very first evidence of wine production at the Roman site, but also in the early second century site, uh, there's no evidence of wine production either. And what we uncovered was a salivinaria, and that's a winery, a room that in this case has a mortar floor into which very large storage vessels, dolia, such as these two here, are sunk. Uh, You can see I've highlighted some of them here. Some of them were robbed out. Some were still in situ. And I'll return to this at the end that there would have been room for more, possibly up to 18. But we uncovered examples uh, numbering 10. This is a second century addition to the vicus. Uh, so when uh, the uh, grain production is upped, uh, we find that the estate managers are diversifying a little bit here by also practising viniculture. The uh, binaria is used until around AD 200, so only for about a century. It might have been moved to another spot or just given up. We're not sure. Now, these dolia defosa, that means buried uh, dolia, were sunk into the ground up to their necks uh, to keep the temperature of the wine constant and cool. This is a necessary measure in hot climate zones and Pliny the Elder writes about this. They were lined with pitch and agrarian writers prescribed this. And in fact, uh, you can see a couple of the sherds here. This is the outer surface of the sherd and you can see how pitch has just penetrated the surface of the fabric of the vessel. Here it is. Um, And kept the uh, wine fresh, kept it from from going off and uh, also kept the wine from um, leaking or seeping into the fabric of the vessels. Ben Stern from Bradford University conducted this residue analysis and the lining of the uh, dolia with pitch was so successful, unfortunately for us, that we could not find any evidence of wine markers like tartaric acid in the fabric because the wine simply didn't uh, migrate into the walls of the vessels. Now, these dolia are actually really large. They come in sizes from anywhere between 400 litres capacity to about a thousand, the ones that are fixed permanently wineries. There are considerable capital uh, investment, as of course are the vines that would need to be planted and the personnel needed to uh, bring the vines to uh, fruition. They have to be tended for years before they start to bear fruit and bring financial returns. So setting up a winery was not uh, done on the whim of the emperor or his estate managers. It would have quite required a lot of investment. And here is our 3D reconstruction of the cella vinaria as we see it nestled into the northwest corner of the Vicus building. We don't know where the vineyards were. Unfortunately, we don't have this kind of evidence um, where you can see the plantings of vines in the soil. This is a Roman vineyard near Bordeaux. I wish we did, but we don't. Anyway, these very large dolia, they stay in the ground uh, for perhaps decades. They could easily be in the ground and being reused every year for the new vintage. For 40 years, that's entirely possible. The stolia often need repairs. They're very difficult to make and cracks can form while they're being fired in the kiln or soon thereafter. And they often need pairs. And here's a couple of very good ones uh, found today in Rome and Herculaneum. And you can see that they're usually repaired using lead clamps, a mixture of lead paste, Or liquid lead poured into the cracks then uh, holes drilled on either side of the cracks and liquid lead or lead clamps inserted and then all sealed up and they really seem to have done the trick and uh, they're present on most dolia that have been in use in the ground for a long time wine cellars like this salivinarii are known um, throughout italy Um, And they have anywhere between a dozen and 40 or more dolia. They're known uh, on private farms elsewhere in Italy, uh, also in the Mediterranean. Quite a few of them are known on the south coast of France and in Spain. And they usually, these vessels have a capacity of between 500 or even 1,000 litres. Of course, anywhere near Vesuvius, these things uh, survive in miraculous condition, as they do here in this uh, modest winery at Boscoreale, outside Pompeii. And you can see them as they were found, covered by the debris from Vesuvius in 79 AD, and as they've been excavated here, buried into the ground up to their necks with a lid and then with a second lid on top. Now these wineries are open to the sky and so the the double lid system uh, protects them from the sun and the heat and inclement weather too, I think. Uh, Some of Vesuviana, that was a a surprise discovery just up on the slopes of Mount Vesuvius, recently found. But we also have wine storage dolia at Ostia, for example, outside Rome, and a number of estates in in Apulia where the wine that was exported was uh, produced. And you can see an aerial view here of one of the wineries and the negatives left from uh, where the dolia were. These are for bulk storage, and we have a number of of other sources that we can use to explore them. On the upper left, you have a funerary relief, probably of the 2nd century AD, now in Liverpool, um, depicting a man and a woman, uh, almost certainly a married couple, uh, clasping hands. And in the background, you can see their winery and the dolia are easily recognisable. And we have a simplified version of the workmen uh, taking wine out of the dolia and putting them into the smaller transport amphorae. And those are what travelled carrying the contents of the dolia. The ceramic lids. Here's another one at the top. Didn't uh, always survive, and not always were the lids made of ceramic. So, for example, if we look at this relief, we can see wooden lids. You can see the slats here. That's quite clear. But it's also quite interesting to look at modern parallels for this, because in Georgia and some parts of of Sicily now, um, there are experiments in in making wine in the Roman fashion using dolia sunk into the ground, much as uh, it was made in antiquity. Uh, the image on the lower right just. Gives you the scale between uh, one of the storage vessels never used for transport from the winery and the transport vessels themselves, the amphorae. So one of these uh, dolia could hold several dozen, the equivalent of several dozen, up to perhaps even 90 or more uh, amphorae of wine. These uh, ceramic vessels were manufactured clearly by very accomplished specialists for the specific task of storage for large quantities of wine. And unfortunately, we don't have any ancient Roman workshop data on how they were made, but there is, recent information because we have this site here, La Terracotta el Vino, it uh, also has its own website where they're making replica ceramic dolia, here's one, and where they describe uh, what it involves to make a dolium of this size. So after, I, uh, after uh, reading this, I, I found it very insightful for understanding uh, what difficult and highly skilled vessels uh, we have. These are vessels of 500 litre capacity, the workshop's near Florence. Um, they're built, uh, coil built, as are our Roman dolia, over 15 to 20 days. You just add a coil a day and let it dry. It's very slow. Another month is then needed to dry them in preparation in storage rooms for firing at a thousand degrees centigrade in large kilns. So uh, we can see that uh, it's a very tricky um, process. You have to know what you're doing. Things have to dry properly. You have to build huge kilns to accommodate them and um, in absolute awe and respect of any of these uh, dolium manufacturers. We also have more recent experiments being conducted in Spain by this project, the Salavinaria project, where uh, kilns on the left are created so that dolia can be fired in them. Here's one of the products of a modern firing, but we can see 100 years ago, and there are ethnographic parallels on Greece, in Greece and in, in Spain for making these very large vessels. And, and uh, firing them in very large kilns. So, that kind of information is very useful in trying to understand what the making of a Roman dolium involved. Now, you might think that the dolia that are found in the winery at at, at Vannery were locally produced. That would make sense. We are not very far from the Adriatic coast, where there are specialists in making amphorae, where we have the vineyards, etc. So you would think that uh, the dolia would come from there. Um, And this would make sense from the normal economic perspective. You wouldn't have long transport routes or high costs for them. But a British Academy-funded fabric analysis by Giuseppe Montana and Luciano Randazzo at the Universities of Palermo and Calabria instead uh, shows that the dolia were made on the west coast of Italy. They might have been made in the Roman magmatic province, uh, which I've highlighted here in turquoise with Rome, so it's the whole... Tiber Valley, the hinterland of Rome. Um, I should say, uh, what gives us a clue of uh, where Ardolia were made is, of course, that the vessel fabric is tempered with volcanic particles and it can be determined where those volcanic particles were, where the volcanoes were. And they suggest uh, that uh, the vessels are made on the west coast, the Tyrrhenian coast of Italy, either in the Roman magmatic province here in the hinterland of Rome or in the Anici Roccamon Fii, Volcanic Province, that's here in green, with Minturnai as the main site, its key site. But the uh, analysis has shown that the best match for them is the anici Orocomonfina Volcano, so this region here with, Mon- with Minturnai as its key site. Minturnai lies on the ancient Liri River, the modern Garigliano, and it flows from the interior of the Apennines down to the sea. The temper uh, of, come, of course, partly would have come from the Rocca Monfina volcano, which you can see here. And this is a prime uh, vineyard and wine growing territory even today. This is the Garigliano. And right here in the background is the Roman colony of Minturnae, in a very pivotal position with a very fertile and rich hinterland, wine growing, uh, located also on a river with access to the sea. The results of this study um, have been accepted by the Journal of Archaeological Science reports and I expect that that will be out in the next weeks. Now, those are the dolia that are fixed into a wine cellar and they stay in a wine cellar, they don't move around. But we also have another category and another version of the dolia. And these are the truly enormous wine dolia with a capacity of up to 3,000 litres of wine, which were used for bulk transport of wine, probably of table quality from Italy and primarily across the Mediterranean to southern Gaul, to southern France and to Spain. A number of these vessels, you can see some of the very large ones here. I'm standing looking a little bit stunned next to the size of these vessels. Here is the size of one that you'd find in a winery floor, and these are the up to 3,000 litre giants. They have quite often makers' stamps on them. You can see two down at the bottom. And we know from uh, epigraphic sources that many of the names of the proprietors of these kilns for the gigantic Dolia uh, lived in and around Minturnae. So it gives us uh, that kind of independent confirmation, in addition to the fabric analysis, that this is the place where Dolia were made. These very large transport dolia were um, inserted into ships that were specially made for the transport dolia. And these ships are also made at Minturnai on the Garigliano River. Ship sheds have been found there. And uh, we find uh, the products on these wine tankers plying uh, the Western Mediterranean. We find a number of shipwrecks. I think there are 13 of them known thus far, all dating to about the mid-first century BC to the mid-first century AD, maybe to the end of the first century. century AD. So we have the fabric analysis, we have the stamps on the vessels, and we have some of the same names of these enterprising families also uh, preserved on inscriptions in Minturnae itself um, by various tax collectors and and magistrates and so on. So altogether, uh, we can make a very good case uh, for the vessels coming from Minturnae. But as I indicated, not just these gigantic dolia for bulk transport were made at Mintuanai, but also the winery size ones. A couple of them have been found on estates north of Rome. But as far as I know, our estate down here uh, in Apulia is the only one that's ever been found away from the western coast of Italy. Uh, by the way, I should say that these very large transport dolia were never removed from the ship. Uh, the wine uh, in them is simply siphoned out at the at destination and then uh, put in different vessels. They did not leave the ship, unlike amphorae, which of course are, are loaded and unloaded and travel around a lot more. Now, what do we know about Minturni. This is actually really rather intriguing to think that we have products from Minturni, the West Coast, being used in a winery on the East Coast of Italy. Well, Minturni during the second and first centuries BC uh, was a very prosperous place. It's a Roman colony. It's on the Via Appia, one of those pink-starred colonies that I showed you in the satellite image, founded in 295 BC. Um it's of course fortuitously located on the mouth of the river with agricultural land and forests and its hinterland in the mountains. Very good for shipbuilding. Use a an image on the lower left, of part of the city of Minturnae. Uh, most of it still lies under vineyards and, and orchards. And here's the uh, Garigliano, or the ancient Liris River, flowing right next to it. And this, in fact, is the Via Appia, which goes right through the middle of the colony. The estates in the hinterland of the Roman towns of Minturnae, Sinuessa, and Fundi, to name a few, in this region, um, all located near the river and near the volcanoes that provide not only um, the ash for the good soil, but also the uh, temper for the for the dolia. Um, these estates uh, we know belong to many Roman elites from the city of Rome, including some of the uh, families of the emperors themselves. And uh, it's certain that many of them were in the business of commercial wine production, and it could very well. Be that estates belonging to the emperor here were producing wine as well, although we're still lacking the epigraphic evidence for that. But the wine that grows in this region, you can see on this map here, Falarnian, Cacoban. Uh, These are some of the very finest wines in antiquity. So um, it is a very large wine producing area. And in fact, the mosaic on the floor of one of the bath buildings in the center of Minturnai shows uh, some cherubs uh, tromping on grapes to produce juice flowing into Dolia. So wine producing and Dolia uh, are even emblematic of the city and can be seen uh, in this context. Minturnai is very, very well connected. It's connected uh, to Spain. Uh, we know that through various coin series. And of course, uh, the wine, the bulk wine, is going across to Spain. So there, there's a, a toing and froing of wine and other commodities back and forth. Uh, the families, the rich uh, slave owning families of Minturnai, also have connections to Delos, to the Eastern Mediterranean, where we have uh, the families named epigraphically. So they seem to be sometimes dealing in wine and sometimes dealing in slaves and perhaps often dealing in both. So we have uh, several businesses uh, making uh, the large dolia for these tankers to uh, supply the wine, but we also have uh, businesses making the dolia for the wineries themselves. Unfortunately, we have not found any workshops or production facilities archaeologically outside of Minto although amphora workshops have So the research on the Vanieri dolia is an important step in understanding how the dolium industry, if you like, in central Italy was organized, how the vessels were deployed and the routes taken to transport them to their destinations, either as transport vessels or as production and storage vessels. What would really be good is if we could have an archaeometric analysis of land and sea finds, a larger program, and I think we'd find that quite a lot of the Dolia we know, uh, we could prove that they do come from Minturnine. Um The little blue ships here, I had lots of fun learning how to use symbols whilst doing this PowerPoint. Um, these are just some of the Dolium shipwreck finds that contain uh, Dolia from Minturnai. Now, the dolia makers or the builders of the wine tanker ships in Minturnai were not the producers of the wine. We have to separate them. Uh, The regional wine growers produced the wine and their product was then uh, entrusted to the transporters and traders who bought the wine uh, from the dolia and uh, decanted it into amphorae. Once out of the dolia, the wine belonged to the trader, no longer to the vineyard owner. Now normally, as I suggested earlier, in regions where Roman wine was produced in significant quantities, as in southeast Italy on the Adriatic coast, the kilns and workshops for dolia were located at or near the harvesting sites and estates. However, the emperor, or rather the imperial administration or procurator responsible for the estate at Vaneri, did not procure dolia de Fossa for the new winery in the second century from any of the wine or dolia producers in Apulia. Using suppliers for essential and specialist equipment from the Minturni region on the other side of the peninsula makes little sense in this context, and it seems excessive and unnecessary unless there were particular reasons to do so. One reason might be that the emperor owned vineyards as well as the heavy ceramics workshops in the territory of Mintornay that produced the dolia de Fossa for use on his estates wherever they might be, and therefore also the dolia themselves. So the dolia actually belong to the imperial fiscus. They belong to the emperor if they're produced on his estates. The peak of demand for wine from southern Latium and northern Campania, this region here inside the black box, was uh, in the first centuries BC and AD, as the amphorae and dolia on ships in the western Mediterranean indicate. The markets for Italian wine in the provinces dropped off considerably after that, although we certainly can't say that the wine industry was in crisis in Italy, um, the wine producers are still producing for Italy itself. But because wine is no longer exported in such great quantities, perhaps the emperor's properties around Minturnae uh, might have had a surplus of wine vats made in Minturnae that were not needed there. And when the winery and vanyery was set up in the second century, some of those dolia were deployed to his imperial estate on the other side of Italy uh, in Apulia. Another scenario, however, is that the imperial fiscus simply purchased the dolia needed for the Banyary estate. And perhaps the emperor or his estate manager, when setting up wine production at Banyary, simply procured the best equipment available, as any conscientious landowner might have done. And this involved dolia from the Minturnae region. We simply do not yet know enough about the equipment procurement procedures of imperial properties. And this is uh, one of those <laughs> I'd like to say rabbit holes, excuse me, that I'm going down right now, imperial economy, are something that uh, is quite a lot of work, but very interesting nonetheless. Roman agricultural writers make clear that they valued some regional project, products as superior in quality. Cato, in the second century BC, for example, advising where to get the best farm equipment, seemed to value, above all, dolia made in Rome. He doesn't mention the That was his judgment, relevant to the situation in about 160 BC, and he he was writing primarily for landowners around Rome. By the Augustan period, uh, late 1st century BC, early 1st century AD, when the gigantic transport dolia and the smaller dolia de fossa were being made around Minturni, however, the more uh, prolific and respected workshops might have been these around Minturni and no longer Rome. The output of these workshops in the Minturni region, probably dotted around the hinterland, up and down the riverbanks, almost certainly near the river, also where the tanker ship are built may have been quite extensive and their products very widely diffused. Now, it would have obviously required considerable effort to get the dolia from the west coast of Italy to Vannery, and it's rather puzzling why such a modest winery as the one at Vannery possibly just producing sufficient wine for the estate inhabitants would have been outfitted this way, unless perhaps these Mintonian products were considered the very best available. So these expensive, complicated and bulky specialist vessels were brought to Bagnari all the way from the west coast, probably on ships for ease of transport. And I've suggested some routes here. So either from Mintoni around the toe of Italy, up the Ionian Sea, and perhaps shipped up the river as far as it's navigable and the rest on land, perhaps into the still functioning and busy harbour of Tarentum, and then joining here, as you can see, on the Via Appia all the way to Banyari, or perhaps stopping on the east coast at any number of ports along this uh, Adriatic coast. These are all possible. So we've got things, uh, the dolia themselves uh, coming from the Garigliano. There's still the small possibility that the dolia might come from around Rome, I don't think that they do, but they might have been shipped from Rome using the Tiber. That's possible. Coming up the Bradano, that's this river here. That's our other possibility. And one of the major ports here on the Adriatic coast would have been Brindisi. So these are some of the ship routes that are possible. But, you know, I mean, it's it's quite complicated. Uh, Minturni to Brindisium, for example, would have taken eight days by ship. It's over a thousand kilometers. Ostia. Uh, the port of Rome, to Brindisium, eight and a half days, that's over 1,100 kilometres. Uh, but uh, these are long ship journeys, but definitely they make much more sense than, for example, loading uh, these large dolia onto multiple carts, ox-driven, going over the mountains with teams of oxen and and, and men uh, to um, deliver them to Banyari. Uh, it's not profitable and it would have taken much, much longer. So I think the sea route is the one that I would choose. But it's still surprising, uh, considering the modest nature of the winery at Vanierie, that all this effort was gone to. If we compare the Vanierie winery here on the lower, on the upper left, and I've added other dolia that we couldn't find, but there would have been room for them, up to 18 potentially. If we compare that with some of the other private wineries on the uh, Bay of Naples, uh, like at Stabiae, Boscoreale, both villas here, uh, it's clear that the winery at Vanierie was modest in size and capacity. If each of the dolia at Vannery had a capacity of about 500 litres, it uh, would uh, produce between 5,000 litres if there's just 10 dolia or 9,000 litres if there are 18. For this site here, the Villa Regina, which is a a modest family-owned farm um, outside Pompeii, uh, there's calculated 10,000 litres being produced here. So it shows you how modest uh, the winery is and very much like a private one at Stabian, unlike this one here outside Pompeii, the visa, uh, Villa della Pisanella, which calculate, is calculated to have produced 85,000 litres, um, a villa clearly whose purpose, sole purpose was to produce wine. So we really don't know whether the a winery here at Vanyary was just for the inhabitants of the estate. I think that probably is the case, and that might have to do with the imperial estate uh, being self-sufficient. And it might follow hand-in-hand hand with the idea of things that are in imperial property being exchanged with other imperial properties. So, for example, the dolia belonging to an imperial workshop being shipped to Vannery, another imperial workshop uh, or or, or site. Uh, Perhaps that goods and products were exchanged without any money being used. Uh, And instead of importing wine from further afield, the vicus at Vannery was being self-sufficient in producing wine just for itself. It's not a big wine producer. It's not one of the big exporters. It's now, we don't really know the size of the settlement at Vanyuri, and so I cannot say for certain that there wasn't a bigger Salabinaria or that somewhere perhaps wine was produced in grander style, because what we have excavated is on the satellite photo here. You can see the buildings. The yellow indicates the tile scatter that was noted on a field walking survey. However, today, if you're working at the site and you walk down the slopes in any direction, there are still lots and lots of roof tiles suggesting that perhaps a larger surface of the plateau was covered with buildings. And we have no way of knowing whether there might be bigger and more capacious uh, storage facilities still awaiting discovery. Now, I'd like to finish with just a couple comments about the role of the estate. Because I mentioned at the beginning that we have Roman towns, they're highlighted here on this map as blue dots. You can see there's quite a lot of them here along the coast. The countryside has undergone centuriation. The countryside is peopled by lots of villas and employees and slaves and so on who work the land. Uh, we also have two major towns. One is Canosa here, a big textile centre, and Venusia or Venosa, uh, the uh, Roman colony uh, on the Via Appia, and another Roman colony down here at Tarentum. Um, We have the green of the droveways for transhumans and here's the Via Avia. The pink are very small villages, and you'll notice that although there's a lot of dense settlement around the larger towns and along the coast, here in this region, in the central part of Apulia, there isn't a lot of settlement going on. And I think because of its location on the Via Appia, located as it is, this very large agricultural estate with its central village would have acted as a hub for the region. Um, it uh, Some of the towns are very close, Bantia, for example, Bansi is 40 kilometres away, and Ruby, uh, Ruvo, is over 60 kilometres, and the colony of Venusia is also 60 kilometres away. So it's an area that isn't densely settled, and the estate hub at Vanyuri must have been an essential mechanism by which to provide the population recruited for settlement and employment with public amenities, social cohesion, economic security, and personal opportunity. And the estate, of course, managed the transformation of the region. So the well-documented sequences of occupation and diagnostic assemblages of late Republican and Imperial date at Vanuary offer a fresh archaeological perspective on changes in social and political circumstances. They give us information on the confiscation and manipulation of a landscape. They tell us about human and animal mobility. And they inform us about economic connectivity in the context of Roman imperial ownership, not just as the material culture indicates with regions outside Italy, across the Adriatic, and with North Africa, but also as the dolia show with regions on the other side of Italy.
1: Thank you for listening to Archaeology Mail. For more information about our podcast and guest speaker, please visit our page on the Archaeology Podcast Network. You can get in touch with us at Archaeology in the City on Facebook, WordPress, Instagram, or Twitter. If you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Next month, our talk will be Yvette Marks from the University of Sheffield speaking on experimental reconstruction of Roman bread. See you there!